Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain Chapter 41 The Interdict However, my attention was suddenly snatched from such matters. Our child began to lose ground again, and we had to go to sitting up with her. Her case became so serious. We couldn't bear to allow anybody to help in this service, so we two stood watch and watch, day in and day out. Ah, Sandy, what a right heart she had, how simple and genuine and good she was. She was a flawless wife and mother, and yet I had married her for no other particular reasons except that by the customs of chivalry she was my property until some knight should win her from me in the field. She had hunted Britain over for me had found me at the hanging bout outside of London, and had straightway resumed her old place at my side in the placidest way and as of right. I was a New Englander, and in my opinion this sort of partnership would compromise her sooner or later. She couldn't see how, but I cut argument short, and we had a wedding. Now I didn't know I was drawing a prize, yet that was what I did draw. Within the twelve months I became her worshipper, and ours was the dearest and perfectest comradeship that ever was. People talk about beautiful friendships between two persons of the same sex. What is the best of that sort, as compared with the friendship of man and wife, where the best impulses and highest ideals of both are the same? There is no place for comparison between the two friendships. The one is earthly, the other divine. In my dreams, along at first, I still wandered thirteen centuries away, and my unsatisfied spirit went calling and harking all up and down the unreplying vacancies of a vanished world. Many a time Sandy heard that imploring cry come from my lips in my sleep. With a grand magnanimity she saddled that cry of mine upon our child, conceiving it to be the name of some lost darling of mine. It touched me to tears, and it also nearly knocked me off my feet, too, when she smiled up in my face for an earned reward, and played her quaint and pretty surprise upon me. The name of one who was dear to thee is here preserved, here made holy, and the music of it will abide always in our ears. Now thou'lt kiss me, as knowing the name I have given the child. But I didn't know it, all the same. I hadn't an idea in the world but it would have been cruel to confess it and spoil her pretty game, so I never let on, but said, Yes, I know, sweetheart, how dear and good it is of you, too, but I want to hear these lips of yours, which are also mine, utter it first, then its music will be perfect. Pleased to the marrow, she murmured, Hello, Central. I didn't laugh, I am always thankful for that, but the strain ruptured every cartilage in me, and for weeks afterward I could hear my bones clack when I walked. She never found out her mistake. The first time she heard that form of salute used at the telephone she was surprised, and not pleased. But I told her I had given order for it, that henceforth and forever the telephone must always be invoked with that reverent formality, in perpetual honor and remembrance of my lost friend and her small namesake. This was not true, but it answered. Well, during two weeks and a half we watched by the crib, and in our deep solicitude we were unconscious of any world outside of that sick-room. Then our reward came. The center of the universe turned the corner and began to mend. Grateful? It isn't the term. There isn't any term for it. You know that yourself, if you've watched your child through the valley of the shadow, and seen it come back to life and sweep night out of the earth with one all-illuminating smile that you could cover with your hand. 
Why, we were back in this world in one instant. Then we looked the same startled thought into each other's eyes at the same moment. More than two weeks gone, and that ship not back yet. In another minute I appeared in the presence of my train. They had been steeped in troubled bodings all this time. Their faces showed it. I called an escort, and we galloped five miles to a hilltop overlooking the sea. Where was my great commerce that so lately had made these glistening expanses populous and beautiful with its white-winged flocks? Vanished, every one. Not a sail, from verge to verge, not a smoke-bank, just a dead and empty solitude, in place of all that brisk and breezy life. I went swiftly back, saying not a word to anybody. I told Sandy this ghastly news. We could imagine no explanation that would begin to explain. Had there been an invasion, an earthquake, a pestilence? Had the nation been swept out of existence? But guessing was profitless. I must go, at once. I borrowed the King's Navy, a ship no bigger than a steam-launch, and was soon ready. The parting—yes, <laughs> that was hard. As I was devouring the child with last kisses, it brisked up and jabbered out its vocabulary, the first time in more than two weeks, and it made fools of us for joy. The darling mispronunciations of childhood! Dear me, there's no music that can touch it! And how one grieves when it wastes away and dissolves into correctness, knowing it will never visit his bereaved ear again! Well, how good it was to be able to carry that gracious memory away with me! I approached England the next morning, with the wide highway of salt water all to myself. There were ships in the harbor at Dover, but they were naked as to sails, and there was no sign of life about them. It was Sunday, yet at Canterbury the streets were empty. Strangest of all, there was not even a priest in sight, and no stroke of a bell fell upon my ear. The mournfulness of death was everywhere. I couldn't understand it. At last, in the further edge of that town, I saw a small funeral procession. Just a family and a few friends following a coffin. No priest. A funeral without bell, book, or candle. There was a church there, close at hand, but they passed it by, weeping, and did not enter it. I glanced up at the belfry, and there hung the bell, shrouded in black, and its tongue tied back. Now I knew. Now I understood the stupendous calamity that had overtaken England. Invasion? Invasion is a triviality to it. It was the interdict. I asked no questions. I didn't need to ask any. The church had struck. The thing for me to do was to get into a disguise and go warily. One of my servants gave me a suit of clothes, and when we were safe beyond the town I put them on, and from that time I travelled alone. I could not risk the embarrassment of company. A miserable journey, a desolate silence everywhere, even in London itself. Traffic had ceased. Men did not talk or laugh, or go in groups, or even in couples. They moved aimlessly about each man by himself, with his head down, and woe and terror in his heart. The tower showed recent war-scars. Verily, much had been happening. Of course, I meant to take the train to Camelot. Train! Why, the station was as vacant as a cavern. I moved on. The journey to Camelot was a repetition of what I had already seen the Monday and the Tuesday different in no way from the Sunday. I arrived far in the night. From being the best electric-lighted town in the kingdom, and the most like a recumbent son of anything you ever saw, it was become simply a blot, a blot upon darkness. That is to say, it was darker and solider than the rest of the darkness, and so you could see it a little better. It made me feel as if 
maybe it was symbolical a sort of sign that the church was going to keep the upper hand now and snuff out all my beautiful civilization just like that i found no life stirring in the somber streets i groped my way with a heavy heart the vast castle loomed black upon the hilltop not a spark visible upon it the drawbridge was down the great gate stood wide i entered without challenge my own heels making the only sound i heard and it was sepulchral enough in those huge vacant courts End of chapter 41 Chapter 42 War I found Clarence alone in his quarters, drowned in melancholy, and, in place of the electric light, he had reinstituted the ancient rag-lamp and sat there in a grisly twilight with all curtains drawn tight. He sprang up and rushed for me eagerly, saying, "'Oh, it's worth a billion milrays to look upon a live person again!' He knew me as easily as if I hadn't been disguised at all, which frightened me, one may easily believe that. "'Quick, now, tell me the meaning of this fearful disaster,' I said. "'How did it come about?' "'Well, if there hadn't been any Queen Guinevere, it wouldn't have come so early. But it would have come anyway. It would have come on our own account by and by. By luck it happened to come on the Queen's.' "'And Sir Lancelot's?' "'Just so.' "'Give me the details.' I reckon you will grant that during some years there has been only one pair of eyes in these kingdoms that has not been looking steadily askance at the Queen and Sir Lancelot. Yes, King Arthur's. And only one heart that was without suspicion. Yes, the King's. A heart that isn't capable of thinking evil of a friend. Well, the King might have gone on, still happy and unsuspecting, to the end of his days, but for one of your modern improvements, the stock-board. When you left, three miles of the London, Canterbury, and Dover were ready for the rails, and also ready and ripe for manipulation in the stock market. It was wildcat, and everybody knew it. The stock was for sale at a giveaway. What does Sir Lancelot do but— Yes, I know. He quietly picked up nearly all of it for a song. Then he bought about twice as much more, deliverable upon call. And he was about to call when I left. Very well. He did call. The boys couldn't deliver. Oh, he had them, and he just settled his grip and squeezed them. They were laughing in their sleeves over their smartness in selling stock to him at fifteen and sixteen and along there that wasn't worth ten. Well, when they had laughed long enough on that side of their mouths, they rested up that side by shifting the laugh to the other side. That was when they compromised with the invincible at two hundred and eighty-three. Good land! He skinned them alive, and they deserved it. Anyway, the whole kingdom rejoiced. Well, among the flayed were Sir Agravain and Sir Mordred, nephews to the king. End of the first act. Act second, scene first, an apartment in Carlisle Castle, where the court had gone for a few days hunting. Persons present, the whole tribe of the king's nephews. Mordred and Agravain proposed to call the guileless Arthur's attention to Guinevere and Sir Lancelot. Sir Gawaine, Sir Gareth, and Sir Gaheris will have nothing to do with it. A dispute ensues with loud talk. In the midst of it enter the king. Mordred and Agravain spring their devastating tale upon him. Tableau. A trap is laid for Lancelot by the king's command, and Sir Lancelot walks into it. He made it sufficiently uncomfortable for the ambushed witnesses to it, Mordred, Agravain, and twelve knights of lesser rank, for he killed every one of them but Mordred. But of course that couldn't straighten matters between Lancelot and the king and didn't. 
oh dear only one thing could result i see that war and the knights of the realm divided into a king's party and a sir lancelot's party yes that was the way of it the king sent the queen to the stake proposing to purify her with fire and lancelot and his knights rescued her and in doing it slew certain good old friends of yours and mine in fact some of the best we ever had to wit sir bellius le orgulus sir seguaridus sir griflet le fils de dieu sir brandalus sir aglovale oh you tear out my heart-strings wait i'm not done yet sir tor sir gauter sir gillimer the very best man in my subordinate nine what a handy right-fielder he was sir reynolds three brothers sir damus sir priamus sir kay the stranger my peerless shortstop i've seen him catch a daisy-cutter in his teeth come i can't stand this sir driant sir lambagus sir hermendi sir pertelope sir perimonus and whom do you think rush go on sir gaheris and sir gareth both oh incredible their love for lancelot was indestructible well it was an accident they were simply onlookers they were unarmed and were merely there to witness the queen's punishment sir lancelot smote down whoever came in the way of his blind fury and he killed these without noticing who they were here is an instantaneous photograph one of our boys got of the battle it's for sale on every newsstand there the figures nearest the queen are sir lancelot with his sword up and sir gareth gasping his last breath you can catch the agony in the queen's face through the curling smoke it's a rattling battle picture indeed it is we must take good care of it its historical value is incalculable go on well the rest of the tale is just war pure and simple lancelot retreated to his town and castle of joyous guard and gathered there a great following of knights the king with a great host went there and there was desperate fighting during several days and as a result all the plain around was paved with corpses and cast-iron then the church patched up a peace between arthur and lancelot and the queen and everybody everybody but sir gawain he was bitter about the slaying of his brothers gareth and gaheris and would not be appeased he notified lancelot to get him thence and make swift preparation and look to be soon attacked so lancelot sailed to his duchy of guienne with his following and gawain soon followed with an army and he beguiled arthur to go with him arthur left the kingdom in sir mordred's hands until you should return ah a king's customary wisdom yes sir mordred set himself at once to work to make his kingship permanent he was going to marry guinevere as a first move but she fled and shut herself up in the tower of london mordred attacked the bishop of canterbury dropped down on him with the interdict the king returned mordred fought him at dover at canterbury and again at barham down then there was talk of peace and a composition terms mordred to have cornwall and kent during arthur's life and the whole kingdom afterward well upon my word my dream of a republic to be a dream and so remain yes the two armies lay near salisbury gawain gawain's head is at dover castle he fell in the fight there gawain appeared to arthur in a dream at least his ghost did and warned him to refrain from conflict for a month let the delay cost what it might but battle was precipitated by an accident arthur had given order that if a sword was raised during the consultation over the proposed treaty with mordred sound the trumpet and fall on for he had no confidence in mordred mordred had given a similar order to his people well by and by an adder bit a knight's heel 
the knight forgot all about the order and made a slash at the adder with his sword inside of half a minute those two prodigious hosts came together with a crash they butchered away all day then the king however we have started something fresh since you left our paper has no what is that war correspondence why that's good yes the paper was booming right along for the interdict made no impression got no grip while the war lasted i had war correspondence with both armies i will finish that battle by reading you what one of the boys says then the king looked about him and then was he ware of all his host and all of his good knights were left no more on live but two knights that was sir lucan de butler and his brother sir bedivere and they were full sore wounded jesu mercy said the king where are all my noble knights becomen alas that ever i should see this doleful day for now said arthur i am come to mine end but would to god i wist where were that traitor sir mordred that hath cost all this mischief then was king arthur ware where sir mordred leaned upon his sword among a great heap of dead men now give me my spear said arthur unto sir lucan for yonder i have espied the traitor that all this woe hath wrought sir let him be said sir lucan for he is unhappy if ye pass this unhappy day ye shall be right well revenged upon him good lord remember ye of your knight's dream and what the spirit of sir gawaine told you this night yet god of his great goodness hath preserved you hitherto therefore for god's sake my lord leave off by this for blessed be god ye have won the field for here we be three on live and with sir mordred is none on live and if ye leave off now this wicked day of destiny is past tide me death betide me life said the king now i see him yonder alone he shall never escape mine hands for at a better avail shall i never have him god speed you well said sir bedivere then the king gat his spear in both his hands and ran toward sir mordred crying traitor now is thy death day come and when sir mordred heard sir arthur he ran until him with his sword drawn in his hand and then king arthur smote sir mordred under the shield with a foin of his spear throughout the body more than a fathom and when sir mordred felt that he had his death wound he thrust himself with the might that he had up to the butt of king arthur's spear and right so he smote his father arthur with his sword holden in both his hands on the side of the head that the sword pierced the helmet and the brain-pan and therewithal sir mordred fell stark dead to the earth and the noble arthur fell in a swoon to the earth and there he swooned oft times that is a good piece of war correspondence clarence you are a first-rate newspaper man well is the king all right did he get well poor soul no he is dead i was utterly stunned it had not seemed to me that any wound could be mortal to him and the queen clarence she is a nun in almsbury what changes in such a short while it is inconceivable what next i wonder i can tell you what next well stake our lives and stand by them what do you mean by that the church is master now the interdict included you with mordred it is not to be removed while you remain alive the clans are gathering the church has gathered all the knights that are left alive and as soon as you are discovered we shall have business on our hands stuff with our deadly scientific war material with our hosts of trained save your breath we haven't sixty faithful left what are you saying our schools our colleges our vast workshops our when those knights come those establishments will empty themselves and go over to the enemy 
did you think you had educated the superstition out of those people i certainly did think it well then you may unthink it they stood every strain easily until the interdict since then they merely put on a bold outside at heart they are quaking make up your mind to it when the armies come the mask will fall it's hard news we are lost they will turn our own science against us no they won't why because i and a handful of the faithful have blocked that game i'll tell you what i've done and what moved me to it smart as you are the church was smarter it was the church that sent you cruising through her servants the doctors clarence it is the truth i know it every officer of your ship was the church's picked servant and so was every man of the crew oh come it is just as i tell you i did not find out these things at once but i found them out finally did you send me verbal information by the commander of the ship to the effect that upon his return to you with supplies you were going to leave cadiz cadiz i haven't been at cadiz at all going to leave cadiz and cruise in distant seas indefinitely for the health of your family did you send me that word of course not i would have written wouldn't i naturally i was troubled and suspicious when the commander sailed again i managed to ship a spy with him i have never heard of vessel or spy since i gave myself two weeks to hear from you in then i resolved to send a ship to cadiz there was a reason why i didn't why was that our navy had suddenly and mysteriously disappeared also as suddenly and as mysteriously the railway and telegraph and telephone service ceased the men all deserted poles were cut down the church laid a ban upon the electric light i had to be up and doing and straight off your life was safe nobody in these kingdoms but merlin would venture to touch such a magician as you without ten thousand men at his back i had nothing to think of but how to put preparations in the best trim against your coming i felt safe myself nobody would be anxious to touch a pet of yours so this is what i did from our various works i selected all the men boys i mean whose faithfulness under whatsoever pressure i could swear to and i called them together secretly and gave them their instructions there are fifty-two of them none younger than fourteen and none above seventeen years old why did you select boys because all the others were born in an atmosphere of superstition and reared in it it is in their blood and bones we imagined we had educated it out of them they thought so too the interdict woke them up like a thunderclap it revealed them to themselves and it revealed them to me too with boys it was different such as have been under our training from seven to ten years have had no acquaintance with the church's terrors and it was among these that i found my fifty-two as a next move i paid a private visit to that old cave of merlin's not the small one the big one yes the one where we secretly established our first great electric plant when i was projecting a miracle just so and as that miracle hadn't become necessary then i thought it might be a good idea to utilize the plant now i've provisioned the cave for a siege a good idea a first-rate idea i think so i placed four of my boys there as a guard inside and out of sight nobody was to be hurt while outside but any attempt to enter well we said just let anybody try it then i went out into the hills and uncovered and cut the secret wires which connected your bedroom with the wires that go to the dynamite deposits under all our vast factories mills workshops magazines etc and about midnight i and my boys turned out and connected that wire with the cave and nobody but you and i suspects where the other end of it goes to we laid it underground of course and it was all finished in a couple of hours or so 
we shan't have to leave our fortress now when we want to blow up our civilization it was the right move and the natural one military necessity in the changed condition of things well what changes have come we expected to be besieged in the palace some time or other but however go on next we built a wire fence wire fence yes you dropped the hint of it yourself two or three years ago oh i remember the time the church tried her strength against us the first time and presently thought it wise to wait for a hopefuler season well how have you arranged the fence i start twelve immensely strong wires naked not insulated from a big dynamo in the cave dynamo with no brushes except a positive and a negative one yes that's right the wires go out from the cave and fence in a circle of level ground a hundred yards in diameter they make twelve independent fences ten feet apart that is to say twelve circles within circles and their ends come into the cave again right go on the fences are fastened to heavy oaken posts only three feet apart and these posts are sunk five feet in the ground that is good and strong yes the wires have no ground connection outside the cave they go out from the positive brush of the dynamo there is a ground connection through the negative brush the other ends of the wire return to the cave and each is grounded independently no no that won't do why it's too expensive uses up force for nothing you don't want any ground connection except the one through the negative brush the other end of every wire must be brought back into the cave and fastened independently and without any ground connection now then observe the economy of it a cavalry charge hurls itself against the fence you are using no power you are spending no money for there is only one ground connection till those horses come against the wire the moment they touch it they form a connection with a negative brush through the ground and drop dead don't you see you are using no energy until it is needed your lightning is there and ready like the load in a gun but it isn't costing you a cent till you touch it off oh yes the single ground connection of course i don't know how i overlooked that it's not only cheaper but it's more effectual than the other way for if wires break or get tangled no harm is done no especially if we have a tell-tale in the cave and disconnect the broken wire well go on the gatlings yes that's arranged in the center of the inner circle on a spacious platform six feet high i've grouped a battery of thirteen gatling guns and provided plenty of ammunition that's it they command every approach and when the church's knights arrive there's going to be music the brow of the precipice over the cave i've got a wire fence there and a gatling they won't drop any rocks down on us well and the glass cylinder dynamite torpedoes that's attended to it's the prettiest garden that was ever planted it's a belt forty feet wide and goes around the outer fence distance between it and the fence one hundred yards kind of neutral ground that space is there isn't a single square yard of that whole belt but is equipped with a torpedo we laid them on the surface of the ground and sprinkled a layer of sand over them it's an innocent-looking garden but you let a man start in to hoe it once and you'll see you tested the torpedoes well i was going to but but what why it's an immense oversight not to apply a test yes i know but they're all right i laid a few in the public road beyond our lines and they've been tested oh that alters the case who did it a church committee how kind yes they came to command us to make submission you see they didn't really come to test the torpedoes that was merely an incident did the committee make a report yes they made one 
you could have heard it a mile unanimous that was the nature of it after that i put up some signs for the protection of future committees and we've had no intruders since clarence you've done a world of work and done it perfectly we had plenty of time for it there wasn't any occasion for hurry we sat silent a while thinking then my mind was made up and i said yes everything is ready everything is shipshape no detail is wanting i know what to do now so do i sit down and wait no sir rise up and strike do you mean it yes indeed the defensive isn't in my line and the offensive is that is when i hold a fair hand two-thirds as good a hand as the enemy oh yes we'll rise up and strike uh, that's our game a hundred to one you are right when does the performance begin now we'll proclaim the republic well that will precipitate things sure enough it will make them buzz i tell you england will be a hornet's nest before noon to-morrow if the church's hand hasn't lost its cunning and we know it hasn't now you write and i'll dictate thus proclamation be it known unto all whereas the king having died and left no heir it becomes my duty to continue the executive authority vested in me until a government shall have been created and set in motion the monarchy has lapsed it no longer exists by consequence all political power has reverted to its original source the people of the nation with the monarchy its several adjuncts died also wherefore there is no longer a nobility no longer a privileged class no longer an established church all men are become exactly equal they are upon one common level and religion is free a republic is hereby proclaimed as being the natural estate of a nation when other authority has ceased it is the duty of the british people to meet together immediately and by their votes elect representatives and deliver into their hands the government i signed it the boss and dated it from merlin's cave clarence said why that tells where we are and invites them to call right away that is the idea we strike by the proclamation then it's their innings now have the thing set up and printed and posted right off that is give the order then if you got a couple of bicycles handy at the foot of the hill ho for merlin's cave i shall be ready in ten minutes what a cyclone there is going to be tomorrow when this piece of paper gets to work it's a pleasant old palace this is i wonder if we shall ever again but never mind about that end of chapter forty two a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court by mark twain chapter forty three the battle of the sand belt in merlin's cave clarence and i and fifty-two fresh bright well-educated clean-minded young british boys at dawn i sent an order to the factories and to all our great works to stop operations and remove all life to a safe distance as everything was going to be blown up by secret mines and no telling at what moment therefore vacate at once these people knew me and had confidence in my word they would clear out without waiting to part their hair and i could take my own time about dating the explosion you couldn't hire one of them to go back during the century if the explosion was still impending we had a week of waiting it was not dull for me because i was writing all the time during the first three days i finished turning my old diary into this narrative form it only required a chapter or so to bring it down to date the rest of the week i took up in writing letters to my wife 
It was always my habit to write to Sandy every day, whenever we were separate, and now I kept up the habit for love of it, and of her, though I couldn't do anything with the letters, of course, after I had written them. But it put in the time, you see, and was almost like talking. It was almost as if I was saying, Sandy, if you and Hello Central were here in the cave, instead of only your photographs, what good times we could have. And then, you know, I could imagine the baby goo-gooing something out in reply, with its fists in its mouth, and itself stretched across its mother's lap on its back, and she a-laughing and admiring and worshipping, and now and then tickling under the baby's chin to set it cackling, and then maybe throwing in a word of answer to me herself, and so on and so on. Well, don't you know, I could sit there in the cave with my pen, and keep it up that way by the hour with them. Why, it was almost like having us all together again. I had spies out every night, of course, to get news. Every report made things look more and more impressive. The hosts were gathering, gathering. Down all the roads and paths of England the knights were riding, and priests rode with them to hearten these original crusaders, this being the church's war. All the nobilities, big and little, were on their way, and all the gentry. This was all as was expected. We should thin out this sort of folk to such a degree that the people would have nothing to do but just step to the front with their republic, and—ah, what a donkey I was! Toward the end of the week I began to get this large and disenchanting fact through my head, that the mass of the nation had swung their caps and shouted for the republic for about one day, and there an end. The church, the nobles, and the gentry then turned one grand all-disapproving frown upon them and shriveled them into sheep. From that moment the sheep had begun to gather to the fold—that is to say, the camps—and offer their valueless lives and their valuable wool to the righteous cause. Why, even the very men who had lately been slaves were in the righteous cause, and glorifying it, praying for it, sentimentally slabbering over it just like all the other commoners. Imagine such human muck as this! Conceive of this folly! Yes, it was now death to the Republic everywhere, not a descending voice. All England was marching against us. Truly this was more than I had bargained for. I watched my fifty-two boys narrowly, watched their faces, their walk, their unconscious attitudes, for all these are a language, a language given us purposely, that it may betray us in times of emergency, when we have secrets which we want to keep. I knew that that thought would keep saying itself over and over again in their minds and hearts, All England is marching against us, and ever more strenuously imploring attention with each repetition, even more sharply realizing itself to their imaginations, until even in their sleep they would find no rest from it, but hear the vague and flitting creatures of the dream say, all England, all England, is marching against you. I knew all this would happen. I knew that ultimately the pressure would become so great that it would compel utterance. Therefore I must be ready with an answer at that time, an answer well chosen and tranquilizing. I was right. The time came. They had to speak. Poor lads, it was pitiful to see. They were so pale, so worn, so troubled. At first— their spokesman could hardly find voice or words, but he presently got both. This is what he said, and he put it in the neat modern English taught him in my schools. We have tried to forget what we are, English boys. We have tried to put reason before sentiment, duty before love. Our minds approve, but our hearts reproach us. 
while apparently it was only the nobility, only the gentry, only the twenty-five or thirty thousand knights left alive out of the late wars, we were of one mind, and undisturbed by any troubling doubt. Each and every one of these fifty-two lads who stand here before you said, They have chosen, it is their affair. But think, the matter is altered. All England is marching against us. Oh, sir, consider, reflect. These people are our people. They are bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. We love them. Do not ask us to destroy our nation. Well, it shows the value of looking ahead and being ready for a thing when it happens. If I hadn't foreseen this thing and been fixed, that boy would have had me. I couldn't have said a word. But I was fixed. I said, My boys, your hearts are in the right place. You have thought the worthy thought. You have done the worthy thing. You are English boys, you will remain English boys, and you will keep that name unsmirched. Give yourselves no further concern. Let your minds be at ease. Consider this. While all England is marching against us, who is in the van? Who, by the commonest rules of war, will march in the front? Answer me. The mounted host of mailed knights. True. They are thirty thousand strong. Acres deep they will march. Now observe. None but they will ever strike the sand-belt. Then there will be an episode. Immediately after, the civilian multitude in the rear will retire to meet business engagements elsewhere. None but nobles and gentry are knights, and none but these will remain to dance to our music after that episode. It is absolutely true that we shall have to fight nobody but these thirty thousand knights. Now speak, and it shall be as you decide. Shall we avoid the battle? Retire from the field? No! The shout was unanimous and hearty. Are you, are you, well, afraid of these thirty thousand knights? That joke brought out a good laugh. The boys' troubles vanished away, and they went gaily to their posts. Ah, they were a darling, fifty-two, as pretty as girls, too. I was ready for the enemy now. Let the approaching big day come along. It would find us on deck. The big day arrived on time. At dawn the sentry on watch in the corral came into the cave and reported a moving black mass under the horizon, and a faint sound which he thought to be military music. Breakfast was just ready. We sat down and ate. This over, I made the boys a little speech, and then sent out a detail to man the battery, with Clarence in command of it. The sun rose presently, and sent its unobstructed splendors over the land, and we saw a prodigious host moving slowly toward us with a steady drift and a lined front of a wave of the sea. Nearer and nearer it came, and more and more sublimely imposing became its aspect. Yes, all England was there, apparently. Soon we could see the innumerable banners fluttering, and then the sun struck the sea of armor and set it all aflash. Yes, it was a fine sight. I hadn't ever seen anything to beat it. At last we could make out details. All the front ranks, no telling how many acres deep, were horsemen, plumed knights in armor. Suddenly we heard the blare of trumpets, the slow walk burst into a gallop, and then—well, it was wonderful to see. Down swept that vast horseshoe wave, it approached the sand-belt, my breath stood still. Nearer, nearer, the strip of green turf beyond the yellow belt grew narrow, narrower still, became a mere ribbon in front of the horses then disappeared under their hoofs. 
great scott why the whole front of that host shot into the air with a thunder-crash and became a whirling tempest of rags and fragments and along the ground lay a thick wall of smoke that hid what was left of the multitude from our sight time for the second step in the plan of campaign i touched a button and shook the bones of england loose from her spine in that explosion all our noble civilization factories went up in the air and disappeared from the earth it was a pity but it was necessary we could not afford to let the enemy turn our own weapons against us now ensued one of the dullest quarter hours i had ever endured we waited in a silent solitude enclosed by our circles of wire and by a circle of heavy smoke outside of these we couldn't see over the wall of smoke and we couldn't see through it but at last it began to shred away lazily and by the end of another quarter hour the land was clear and our curiosity was enabled to satisfy itself no living creature was in sight we now perceived that additions had been made to our defences the dynamite had dug a ditch more than a hundred feet wide all around us and cast up an embankment some twenty-five feet high on both borders of it as to destruction of life it was amazing moreover it was beyond estimate of course we could not count the dead because they did not exist as individuals but merely as homogeneous protoplasm with alloys of iron and buttons no life was in sight but necessarily there must have been some wounded in the rear ranks who were carried off the field under cover of the wall of smoke there would be sickness among the others there always is after an episode like that but there would be no reinforcements this was the last stand of the chivalry of england it was all that was left of the order after the recent annihilating wars so i felt quite safe in believing that the utmost force that could for the future be brought against us would be but small that is of knights i therefore issued a congratulatory proclamation to my army in these words soldiers champions of human liberty and equality your general congratulates you in the pride of his strength and the vanity of his renown an arrogant enemy came against you you were ready the conflict was brief on your side glorious this mighty victory having been achieved utterly without loss stands without example in history so long as the planets shall continue to move in their orbits the battle of the sand belt will not perish out of the memories of men the boss i read it well and the applause i got was very gratifying to me i then wound up with these remarks the war with the english nation as a nation is at an end the nation has retired from the field and the war before it can be persuaded to return war will have ceased this campaign is the only one that is going to be fought it will be brief the briefest in history also the most destructive to life considered from the standpoint of proportion of casualties to numbers engaged we are done with the nation henceforth we deal only with the knights english knights can be killed but they cannot be conquered we know what is before us while one of these men remains alive our task is not finished the war is not ended we will kill them all loud and long continued applause i picketed the great embankments thrown up around our lines by the dynamite explosion merely a lookout of a couple of boys to announce the enemy when he should appear again next i sent an engineer and forty men to a point just beyond our lines on the south to turn a mountain brook that was there 
and bring it within our lines and under our command, arranging it in such a way that I could make instant use of it in an emergency. The forty men were divided into two shifts of twenty each, and were to relieve each other every two hours. In ten hours the work was accomplished. It was nightfall now, and I withdrew my pickets. The one who had had the northern outlook reported a camp in sight, but visible with a glass only. He also reported that a few knights had been feeling their way toward us, and had driven some cattle across our lines, but that the knights themselves had not come very near. That was what I had been expecting. They were feeling us, you see. They wanted to know if we were going to play that red terror on them again. They would grow bolder in the night, perhaps. I believed I knew what project they would attempt, because it was plainly the thing I would attempt myself, if I were in their places, and as ignorant as they were. I mentioned it to Clarence. "'I think you are right,' said he. "'It is the obvious thing for them to try.' "'Well, then,' I said, "'if they do it, they are doomed.' "'Certainly.' They won't have the slightest show in the world. Of course they won't. It's dreadful, Clarence. It seems an awful pity. The thing disturbed me so that I couldn't get any peace of mind for thinking of it and worrying over it. So, at last, to quiet my conscience, I framed this message to the knights. To the Honorable, the Commander of the Insurgent Chivalry of England, you fight in vain. We know your strength, if one may call it by that name. We know that at the utmost you cannot bring against us above five and twenty thousand knights. Therefore you have no chance, none whatever. Reflect. We are well equipped, well fortified. We number fifty-four. Fifty-four what? Men? No. Minds. The capablest in the world, a force against which mere animal might may no more hope to prevail than may the idle waves of the sea hope to prevail against the granite barriers of England. Be advised. We offer you your lives. For the sake of your families, do not reject the gift. We offer you this chance, and it is the last. Throw down your arms. Surrender unconditionally to the Republic, and all will be forgiven. Signed, The Boss. I read it to Clarence, and said I proposed to send it by a flag of truce. He laughed the sarcastic laugh he was born with, and said, "'Somehow it seems impossible for you to ever fully realize what these nobilities are. Now let us save a little time and trouble. Consider me the commander of the knights yonder. Now then, you are the flag of truce. Approach and deliver me your message, and I will give you your answer.' I humored the idea. I came forward under an imaginary guard of the enemy's soldiers, produced my paper, and read it through. For answer, Clarence struck the paper out of my hand, pursed up a scornful lip, and said with lofty disdain, "'Dismember me this animal, and return him in a basket to the base-born knave who sent him. Other answer have I none.' How empty is theory in presence of fact! And this was just fact, and nothing else. It was the thing that would have happened. There was no getting around that. I tore up the paper, and granted my mistimed sentimentalities a permanent rest. Then to business. I tested the electric signals from the Gatling platform to the cave, and made sure that they were all right. I tested and retested those which commanded the fences. These were signals whereby I could break and renew the electric current in each fence independently of the others at will. I placed the brook connection under the guard and authority of three of my best boys, who would alternate in two-hour watches all night and promptly obey my signal, if I should have occasion to give it three revolver-shots in quick succession. 
Sentry duty was discarded for the night, and the corral left empty of life. I ordered that quiet be maintained in the cave, and the electric lights turned down to a glimmer. As soon as it was good and dark I shut off the current from all the fences, and then groped my way out to the embankment bordering our side of the great dynamite ditch. I crept to the top of it, and lay there on the slant of the muck to watch. But it was too dark to see anything. As for sounds, there were none. The stillness was death-like. True, there were the usual night sounds of the country, the whir of night-birds, the buzzing of insects, the barking of distant dogs, the mellow lowing of far-off kine. But these didn't seem to break the stillness, they only intensified it, and added a gruesome melancholy to it into the bargain. I presently gave up looking, the night shut down so black, but I kept my ears strained to catch the least suspicious sound, for I judged I had only to wait, and I shouldn't be disappointed. However, I had to wait a long time. At last I caught what you may call indistinct glimpses of sound-dulled metallic sound. I pricked up my ears, then, and held my breath, for this was the sort of thing I had been waiting for. This sound thickened and approached from toward the north. Presently I heard it at my own level, the ridge-top of the opposite embankment, a hundred feet or more away. Then I seemed to see a row of black dots appear along that ridge. Human heads? I couldn't tell. It mightn't be anything at all. You can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. However, the question was soon settled. I heard that metallic noise descending into the great ditch. It augmented fast. It spread all along, and it unmistakably furnished me this fact. An armed host was taking up its quarters in the ditch. Yes, these people were arranging a little surprise party for us. We could expect entertainment about dawn, possibly earlier. I groped my way back to the corral now. I had seen enough. I went to the platform and signaled to turn the current on to the two inner fences. Then I went into the cave and found everything satisfactory there. Nobody awake but the working watch. I woke Clarence and told him the great ditch was filling up with men, and that I believed all the knights were coming for us in a body. It was my notion that as soon as dawn approached we could expect the ditch's ambuscaded thousands to swarm up over the embankment and make an assault, and be followed immediately by the rest of their army. Clarence said, "'They will be wanting to send a scout or two in the dark to make preliminary observations. Why not take the lightning off the outer fences and give them a chance?' "'I've already done it, Clarence. Did you ever know me to be inhospitable?' "'No, you are a good heart. I want to go and—' "'Be a reception committee? I will go, too.' We crossed the corral and lay down together between the two inside fences. Even the dim light of the cave had disordered our eyesight somewhat, but the focus straightway began to regulate itself, and soon it was adjusted for present circumstances. We had had to feel our way before, but we could make out to see the fence-posts now. We started a whispered conversation, but suddenly Clarence broke off and said, "'What is that?' "'What is what?' "'That thing yonder.' "'What thing? Where?' "'There, beyond you, a little piece. Dark something, a dull shape of some kind, against the second fence.' I gazed, and he gazed. I said, "'Could it be a man, Clarence?' "'No, I think not. If you notice, it looks a lit—' "'Why, it is a man, leaning on the fence.' "'I certainly believe it is. Let us go and see.' We crept along on our hands and knees until we were pretty close, and then looked up. Yes, it was a man, a dim great figure in armor standing erect, with both hands on the upper wire, and, of course, there was a smell of burning flesh. Poor fellow! 
dead as a doornail, and never knew what hurt him. He stood there like a statue, no motion about him, except that his plumes swished about a little in the night wind. We rose up and looked in through the bars of his visor, but couldn't make out whether we knew him or not, features too dim and shadowed. We heard muffled sounds approaching, and we sank down to the ground where we were. We made out another night vaguely. He was coming very stealthily and feeling his way. He was near enough now for us to see him put out a hand, find an upper wire, then bend and step under it and over the lower one. Now he arrived at the first night, and startled slightly when he discovered him. He stood a moment, no doubt wondering why the other knight didn't move on. Then he said in a low voice, "'Why dreamest thou here, good Sir Mar—' And then he laid his hand on the corpse's shoulder, and just uttered a little soft moan and sunk down dead. Killed by a dead man, you see. Killed by a dead friend, in fact. There was something awful about it. These early birds came scattering along after each other, about one every five minutes in our vicinity, during half an hour. They brought no armor of offense but their swords. As a rule, they carried the sword ready in the hand, and put it forward and found the wires with it. We would now and then see a blue spark when the night that caused it was so far away as to be invisible to us. But we knew what had happened all the same. Poor fellow, he had touched a charged wire with his sword, and been elected. We had brief intervals of grim stillness, interrupted with piteous regularity by the clash made by the falling of an ironclad, and this sort of thing was going on right along, and was very creepy there in the dark and lonesomeness. We concluded to make a tour between the inner fences. We elected to walk upright for convenience's sake. We argued that if discerned, we should be taken for friends rather than enemies, and in any case, we should be out of reach of swords, and these gentry did not seem to have any spears along. Well, it was a curious trip. Everywhere dead men were lying outside the second fence, not plainly visible, but still visible, and we counted fifteen of those pathetic statues, dead knights standing with their hands on the upper wire. One thing seemed to be sufficiently demonstrated. Our current was so tremendous that it killed before the victim could cry out. Pretty soon we detected a muffled and heavy sound, and next moment we guessed what it was. It was a surprise in force coming. Whispered Clarence to go and wake the army and notify it to wait in silence in the cave for further orders. He was soon back, and we stood by the inner fence and watched the silent lightning do its awful work upon that swarming host. One could make out but little of detail, but he could note that a black mass was piling itself up beyond the second fence. That swelling bulk was dead men. Our camp was enclosed with a solid wall of the dead, a bulwark, a breastwork of corpses, you may say. One terrible thing about this thing was the absence of human voices. There were no cheers, no war cries. Being intent upon surprise, these men moved as noiselessly as they could, and always when the front rank was near enough to their goal to make it proper for them to begin to get a shout ready, of course they struck the fatal line, and went down without testifying. I sent a current through the third fence now, and almost immediately through the fourth and fifth, so quickly were the gaps filled up. I believed the time was come now for my climax. I believed that that whole army was in our trap. Anyway, it was high time to find out, so I touched a button and set fifty electric suns aflame on the top of our precipice. Land! What a sight! We were enclosed in three walls of dead men. All the other fences were pretty nearly filled with the living, who were stealthily working their way forward through the wires. The sudden glare paralyzed this host, 
petrified them, you may say, with astonishment. There was just one instant for me to utilize their immobility in, and I didn't lose the chance. You see, in another instant they would have recovered their faculties, then they'd have burst into a cheer and made a rush, and my wires would have gone down before it. But that lost instant lost them their opportunity forever. While even that slight fragment of time was still unspent, I shot the current through all the fences and struck the whole host dead in their tracks. There was a groan you could hear. It voiced the death-pang of eleven thousand men. It swelled out on the night with awful pathos. A glance showed that the rest of the enemy, perhaps ten thousand strong, were between us and the encircling ditch, and pressing forward to the assault. Consequently we had them all, and had them past help. Time for the last act of the tragedy. I fired the three appointed revolver shots, which meant, Turn on the water. There was a sudden rush and roar, and in a minute the mountain brook was raging through the big ditch and creating a river a hundred feet wide and twenty-five deep. Stand to your guns, men! Open fire! The thirteen gatlings began to vomit death into the fated ten thousand. They halted, they stood their ground a moment against that withering deluge of fire, then they broke, faced about, and swept toward the ditch like chaff before a gale. A full fourth part of their force never reached the top of the lofty embankment. The three-fourths reached it, and plunged over, to death by drowning. Within ten short minutes after we had opened fire, armed resistance was totally annihilated. The campaign was ended. We, fifty-four, were masters of England. Twenty-five thousand men lay dead around us. But how treacherous is fortune! In a little while, say an hour, happened a thing by my own fault, which—but I have no heart to write that. Let the record end here. End of chapter 43 A Connecticut Yankee by Mark Twain Chapter 44 A Postscript by Clarence I, Clarence, must write it for him. He proposed that we, too, go out and see if any help could be accorded the wounded. I was strenuous against the project. I said that if there were many, we could do but little for them, and it would not be wise for us to trust ourselves among them anyway. But he could seldom be turned from a purpose once formed, so we shut off the electric current from the fences, took an escort along, climbed over the enclosing ramparts of dead knights, and moved out upon the field. The first wounded Maul who appealed for help was sitting with his back against a dead comrade. When the boss bent over him and spoke to him, the man recognized him and stabbed him. That night was Sir Meliangros, as I found out by tearing off his helmet. He will not ask for help any more. We carried the boss to the cave and gave his wound, which was not very serious, the best care we could. In this service we had the help of Merlin, though we did not know it. He was disguised as a woman, and appeared to be a simple old peasant goodwife. In this disguise, with brown-stained face and smooth-shaven, he had appeared a few days after the boss was hurt, and offered to cook for us, saying her people had gone off to join certain new camps which the enemy were forming, and that she was starving. The boss had been getting along very well, and had amused himself with finishing up his record. We were glad to have this woman, for we were short-handed. We were in a trap, you see, a trap of our own making. If we stayed where we were, our dead would kill us. If we moved out of our defences we should no longer be invincible. We had conquered, in turn we were conquered. 
the boss recognized this we all recognized it if we could go to one of those new camps and patch up some kind of terms with the enemy yes but the boss could not go and neither could i for i was among the first that were made sick by the poisonous air bred by those dead thousands others were taken down and still others to-morrow to-morrow it is here and with that the end about midnight i awoke and saw that hag making curious passes in the air above the boss's head and face and wondered what it meant everybody but the dynamo watch lay steeped in sleep there was no sound the woman ceased from her mysterious foolery and started tiptoeing toward the door i called out stop what have you been doing she halted and said with an accent of malicious satisfaction ye were conquerors ye are conquered these others are perishing you also ye shall all die in this place every one except him he sleepeth now and shall sleep thirteen centuries i am merlin then such a delirium of silly laughter overtook him that he reeled about like a drunken man and presently fetched up against one of our wires his mouth is spread open yet apparently he is still laughing i suppose the face will retain that petrified laugh until the corpse turns to dust the boss has never stirred sleeps like a stone if he does not wake to-day we shall understand what kind of sleep it is and his body will then be borne to a place in one of the remote recesses of the cave where none will ever find it to desecrate it as for the rest of us well it is agreed that if any one of us ever escapes alive from this place he will write the fact here and loyally hide this manuscript with the boss our dear good chief whose property it is be he alive or dead the end of the manuscript final p s by m t the dawn was come when i laid the manuscript aside the rain had almost ceased the world was gray and sad the exhausted storm was sighing and sobbing itself to rest i went to the stranger's room and listened at his door which was slightly ajar i could hear his voice and so i knocked there was no answer but i still heard the voice i peeped in the man lay on his back in bed talking brokenly but with spirit and punctuating with his arms which he thrashed about restlessly as sick people do in delirium i slipped in softly and bent over him his mutterings and ejaculations went on i spoke merely a word to call his attention his glassy eyes and his ashy face were alight in an instant with pleasure gratitude gladness welcome oh sandy you are come at last how i have longed for you sit by me do not leave me never leave me again sandy never again where is your hand give it me dear let me hold it there now all is well all is peace and i am happy again we are happy again isn't it so sandy you are so dim so vague you are but a mist a cloud but you are here and that is blessedness sufficient and i have your hand don't take it away it is for only a little while i shall not require it long was that the child hello central she doesn't answer asleep perhaps bring her when she wakes and let me touch her hands her face her hair and tell her good-bye sandy yes you are there i, I lost myself a moment and i thought you were gone have i been sick long 
it must be so it seems months to me and such dreams such strange and awful dreams sandy dreams that were as real as reality delirium of course but so real why i thought the king was dead i, I thought you were in gaul and couldn't get home i thought there was a revolution in the fantastic frenzy of these dreams i thought that clarence and i and a handful of my cadets fought and exterminated the whole chivalry of england but even that was not the strangest i seemed to be a creature out of a remote unborn age centuries hence and even that was as real as the rest yes i seemed to have flown back out of that age into this of ours and then forward to it again and was set down a stranger and forlorn in that strange england with an abyss of thirteen centuries yawning between me and you between me and my home and my friends between me and all that is dear to me all that could make life worth the living it was awful awfuler than you can ever imagine sandy ah uh, watch by me sandy stay by me every moment don't let me go out of my mind again death is nothing let it come but not with those dreams not with the torture of those hideous dreams i cannot endure that again sandy he lay muttering incoherently some little time then for a time he lay silent and apparently sinking away toward death presently his fingers began to pick busily at the coverlet and by that sign i knew that his end was at hand with the first suggestion of the death-rattle in his throat he started up slightly and seemed to listen then he said a bugle it is the king the drawbridge there man the battlements turn out the he was getting up his last effect but he never finished it end of chapter forty four and end of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain.